My name's Louis Weinstock. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? My name's Stephen Chatterton. Welcome to Man Marking. And we're asking, where's the talking, lads? You're going to get into oh, wow. out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Louis Weinstock and Stephen Chatterton. Sure. Uh, I'm Louis, and I work-wise, I'm a psychotherapist. That's my main job. Well, it's the one that pays the bills. And uh, I work sort of half and half with children, young people and families and some adults. Uh, and then the rest of my time, I do. I run a charity called A Part of Me, which is based around um, developing tech solutions to young people's mental health, particularly focused at the moment on grief. Uh, and then I do some grief workshops uh, sort of every now and then. And that's it. Living in London at the moment, but like many people in London, sort of decided during the lockdown that it's time to get out of this crazy city. <laughs> so we're actually plan we're actually planning to move back up north. Uh, I'm originally from Manchester, Manchester City fan. Have been since I was six, which you obviously have to stress these days when people finally, after all these years, can accuse you of being a glory supporter. <laughs> um, but I've watched them. Um, obviously, go through some pretty miserable times. Yeah, so um, I think I, I kind of identified myself. I think of myself in two capacities, really. And um, contrary to Louis, I'm not actually going to start with the thing that pays the bills. Um, I'm really passionate about mentoring and working with kids, uh, mentoring young people, particularly kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, I grew up myself on a council estate in the Black Country. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's as it should be that obviously no one gets paid for that kind of work. And um, I'll probably go into it in more detail later on, but I'm very passionate about people, particularly men, because when you get into the world of mentoring, it's primarily women who are giving up their free time to work with kids who um, are, are more disadvantaged. And I'm just a big supporter of men getting involved with being a positive influence on the next generation coming through. Um, and I think particularly, particularly boys um, from certain backgrounds, certainly the background kind of background I grew up in, really need some positive role, male role models because probably the only blokes they know are their dads, their brothers, blokes in their family, which is a certain kind of relationship, and then their teachers. So when when a, when a, an external man comes in as a mentor and is basically there just as as a solid kind of support for that kid it's it's life-changing for them so so that that's one thing and then the other thing that i do is i'm also a filmmaker and uh the kind of the cross-pollination there with the mentoring is that i am very passionate about making films with kids in the central role i think telling stories 
from a kid's perspective is a really interesting way to um, create a bit of empathy for the subject that you're dealing with. Um, I've just made a film that um, with a Syrian refugee boy in the lead role and um, that deals with PTSD, not in him, but, but in his mother. And um, yeah, so just, just that sense of kind of creating opportunities, creative opportunities as well for, for kids who wouldn't normally have access to them. Because I think that um, with all kinds of creative elements, whatever it is, I mean, I, I, like I said, I grew up in a council state. No, creativity was a dirty word. I mean, you'd probably get a smack for talking about creativity. But actually, I think that helping young people tap into, helping anybody tap into their own kind of creative impulses is a really good way for a person to just connect with themselves, you know, and it's a really positive tool for essentially generating self-belief. So um, so those are my two big things. And just on the football note, I like to say I'm from the Black Country, uh, West Midlands. If you don't know the Black Country, it's just west of Birmingham. Um, it's literally the place that Tolkien based Mordor on, um, you know, Crack of Doom and all of that. So uh, cheery place. I, I mean, I actually, I, I don't live in the black country anymore, but I, I'm just so deeply in love with the place. I feel like I kind of had to leave to, had to leave the black country to, to really learn to appreciate it. Footballing wise, I'm a baggy. And um, I just want to call you out, Louis, on saying that uh, you just qualified yourself as a city, as a non-glory supporter city fan from the age of six well i want to ask you what you were doing for the first five years mate because that seems to me like just jumping <laughs> on the bandwagon <laughs> no that was the first <laughs> that was the first time i went to a match <laughs> okay fair enough Something yeah around well, that time yeah i've just yeah. pulled that age out of the bag to be honest yeah i can't yeah. remember the first time i went to a match my dad's a city fan so anyway yeah 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 my, my family are, are baggies like but i think i think you know you could do those uh um genetic te spit tests where it tells you what your ancestry is and, and people get really excited when they see they've got Scandinavian or whatever. I'm pretty sure mine's just going to say black country until, <laughs> you know, back to like prehistoric ages or something. So because yeah. we had two guests on today's show, the interview ended up being quite long and I didn't want to cut anything out of it really, because there was a lot of really interesting conversation, a lot of really useful information that came from both Louis and Steve. And so, Without further ado, I'm going to hand you straight over to Louis and Stephen's interview. We do, as always, have a theme for today's interview. The theme is addressing the mental health epidemic and finding better male role models. So I'm going to hand you straight over to the interview, and I'll see you very briefly on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. The podcast itself is about mental health and men's mental health and trying to get people talking. Could you give us an idea as, as to why you agreed to, to, to come on? Well, the first reason was because uh, you mentioned Catherine's name and I really love Catherine. So that was a good initial reason. And then obviously uh, the, the sort of core topics of your podcast, which seem to be football and mental health. Uh, so, you know, obviously I think that's a great combination and two subjects that I'm really interested in. In terms of mental health, I guess my particular uh, focus in terms of mental health at the moment is child mental health. And one of my big concerns, which I devote all of my time to pretty much, is trying to figure out why we're seeing this sort of 
epidemic in uh, mental ill health amongst our children. What is that about when we live in a time when we're supposed to be more comfortable than ever before? We've got more material comforts than ever before. Um, why are we struggling so much with our minds and why are our kids suffering so much? So um, I devote a lot of time and energy to thinking about that and trying to think about solutions to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, as Louis said, the subjects of mental health and, and football are just, it's just such a perfect combination. I mean, when you think about, I, I, I'll be honest, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with football. I was, I was really deeply groomed in it as a kid um, and was very locked into the tribalism of it. And when we were teenagers and we used to go up to the baggies, we we kind of really bought into the idea of being like little hooligans. And we really thought that was cool. And we really thought that was what made us men to have that kind of swagger, that aggressive attitude, that kind of air of dangerousness, you know. Um, and and obviously, I, I grew out of that. And I think that some of those elements are the, are the most toxic elements in society you know and and we can see at its worst football can bring out a real tribalism and an aggression um but on the flip side because football has such a huge reach and has such a position in the male psyche it can be just such an incredible tool for for change and for for education and and for uplift uplifting people because you know, all those guys who, when I was a kid and I looked up to all these like hooligans and, um, you know, like Section 5, as we called them, that was kind of the criminal like hooligan element. And, and we genuinely thought that was the way to be. And now I think about those guys and, and you know, I, I know for a fact, like a lot of the guys I looked up to, like they'd only be in their 40s now and they're all, they're all dead. Um, a lot of them are dead just because whether it's, you know, through topping themselves or just through living a life where there was just such a black hole of, of abuse, whether it's uh, booze or drugs. Um, so I think, you know, like, like I say, there is this relationship between, between what we see on what used to be the terraces and actually an awareness that, oh man, like all, all those guys who, who initially I looked up to and then I really questioned, they're, they're actually, there's a lot of pain. You know, and it, and it just really makes you think, yeah, truth is, reality is a lot of blokes are living in are living in some kind of pain, you know, and we don't even have the language for it. Even I only have half the language for it myself, you know, um, and, I, and I think football really is just this great, great opportunity to to um, re put, bring these questions into the into the public arena and to really shine light on it. And we're seeing it more and more and more. With footballers just speaking up and being being real leaders you know because that's what leadership isn't it it's, that's what leadership is it's just speaking up and just just showing your truth and and owning your vulnerability and that kind of allows other people to to fall in with that as well you know when you think about it we sort of have evolved at some point from being warriors you know we must have that in our dna somewhere and, uh, you know, even if you don't think of yourself as a fighter, I, I reckon we've all got some history, however many generations ago, of being in a warrior era or a warrior culture. So I kind of think it just happens to be that football 
offers people a chance to sort of express some of that. I'm not condoning it, by the way, but I kind of feel what we need as blokes is maybe just better channels to express that, you know, desire to be a warrior, whatever that means. You know, we have aggressive energy and we need to find healthy outlets to express it. Just football happened to be, a, you know, an obvious one for a lot of people and it still is. It's funny you should say that, Louis, because I, I remember listening to a conversation and somebody was saying that same sort of thing and they were saying basically that it's almost good that people get it out at the football in, you know, in almost in like an in air quote safe environment. You know, if you're stood in a different stand to someone, giving it the whole come out then, I'll see you outside. No one actually sees each other outside. Mm. And then it means that they go home and don't take it home with them, which I, I was, part of me was like, I'm not convinced that the fact that you feel you need to do that is that healthy to start with. But I did kind of see the sentiments behind better there than, than somewhere where people can do actual damage. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced either. I mean, on the surface, I, I can see the logic of it, but at the end of the day, if if you've got that like kind of rage in the in you that needs to come out, then there's something kind of deeper going on there that that means that that you need that you need to get that out because um, you know, like I, I used to box when I was a kid, and it's the same kind of logic that that you hear, and and actually, like physically, I, I get that. Like when you're punching a punch bag that really does feel like a release. Um, but I feel like, you know, I, I didn't have any ill feelings toward that, towards that punch bag, you know, but I've been to Millwall away and I've seen those 16 year olds, like give me the death slits, you know, I'm going to cut your throat, mate. No, they're not, they're not over Manchester accent. I don't know why I did that, but you know what I mean? Uh, it's because I'm talking to you. Millwall, Mancunian. Millwall, you know, I'm going to cut your fucking throat, mate. Are we swearing on this, Daniel? Yeah, swear away, mate. Yeah, swear okay, away. Um, but yeah, you know, like when you see, when you see people having that level of like, I mean, it feels like hatred towards their fellow man just over a football match. I feel like is this healthy? I mean, I'm a, I've been to one rugby match in my life in Cardiff, and uh, I was just blown away by how civil it was. And maybe it's just because I'm older now, bro. I was just like, well, this is nice, isn't it? <laughs> this is nice. <laughs> Just having, like having a few points. Definitely nobody getting Larry. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's. I just think it goes much deeper. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, my reference point is always like the blokes I grew up around, and their anger that came out on that on that on the terraces. It was still there afterwards because it yeah. was kind of in them, you know. And they'd, they'd, you know, they'd still get into a fight that night and they'd still want to beat somebody down and they'd still want to bully somebody. And, you know, so it never really, never really left. So, Louis, do you want you? We were talking obviously before about what it is that you do that, that, that in air quotes, pays the bills. Do you want to kind of give people a bit of a background as to, to how you got into what you're doing at the moment and what sort of your day to day job is? How I got into it, kind of, well, the story that I usually tell is that in my um, teenage years, I was kind of, went a bit uh, AWOL, I would say, um, and uh, I was quite angry. I hated school. I didn't feel like I sort of belonged in my family. I had a really difficult relationship with my dad. 
um, and I got in trouble with the police several times. And I was just basically looking for an escape from all of that. And then I had a bit of a turning point when I was 17. And I just not not so long ago discovered raving. And uh, it was one of those weekends where I'd gone out uh, on the Friday and came back on the Sunday. And um, my parents had been really worried about me because they thought I, um, well, they just thought they were just worried about me. I think they thought I was probably using hard drugs or something. So I came back and uh, it was a big scene and my mum just broke down and my dad got really angry and was trying to chase me around and make me do a drug test. And uh, the next day when I uh, woke up, uh, I sort of had this little really kind of a bit of an, in a way it seems like a childlike um, realization which was actually, I really don't want to cause so much pain for people. Like, in a way, I was just being a selfish twat that whole time. And uh, I just wanted to actually focus on trying to be a bit of a better person and try and be a bit kinder to people. And um, the way I expressed that that morning was by drawing on a post-it note, um, one smiley face plus one smiley face equals smiley faces i was probably being quite influenced by the rave i've been at that week <laughs> uh, there was a lot of smiley faces going on so that's the sort of story i tell and at least it's the one of those sort of memories that sticks in my mind is that is when i really decided that i wanted to stop being a selfish twat and try and you know i sort of just realized actually this is not good for anyone um me just being selfish so I started on a path of um, doing things, different things that were kind of uh, in helping roles, um, mainly working with young people. I, I did a project with uh, young people, young refugees running a football project. Um, and then I did loads of things over the years, worked with homeless young people um, and was a social worker for a while, which um was it was really one of the worst jobs you can imagine i don't recommend being a social worker to anyone nobody loves you when you're a social worker nobody and um basically the people who you go and see even though your remit is to protect children from serious harm so i was a child protection social worker nobody loves you you go around to people who are instantly suspicious of you and think you're going to take their kids away and um that's just not a great not a great environment to be working in plus what happened was um they um because of some change in government policy just because they fancied a change it created chaos and people in my team started having nervous breakdowns like it was happening every other day so it was like a mental health crisis in the social work team and i just thought oh this is this is rubbish um, so I decided to get out of there and then I went on to, um, uh, I worked for a charity in London called Kids Company, which works with young people, children, young people, um, from, uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and I ran a school for them for a few years, which was for kids who'd been kicked out of lots of other schools. <laughs> and 
uh, that was an amazing experience. Uh, definitely, by a long way, one of the hardest jobs I've ever done. Because at the start, you're, uh, I was completely unprepared for the environment I was walking into with some really tough, really, uh, at least tough on the surface, London sort of, I guess some of them were kind of gangbanger type of kids and some of them were wannabe gangbangers. Uh, but generally, they would just absolutely rip the piss out of you. And it was a lot of people, again, did have um, did leave because they had nervous breakdowns and stuff. So in a way, it was going from the uh, frying pan into the fire. But what I found over the time of working with those kids is actually really grew. When I stopped being so insecure, I really grew to, to love them because under the surface of this really tough exterior, they were just fragile, vulnerable, really lovely human beings who really just wanted love more than anything else. And um, uh, yeah, I look back on that experience very, very fondly. And I'm still in contact with some of the kids that I um, worked with during that time. Um, and it was from there that I sort of decided to um, um, train to, to be a therapist basically because I had an experience with somebody who was supervising me for kids company where in one session, so you're sitting with this person and you're talking through some of the shit that's going on in your life. And uh, you know, I've never experienced anything like this before, by the way, but you're talking through the shit you're going on in your life. And this person in one session, even in one minute, I would say basically by listening to me, just listening and then giving me this little insight just made me feel completely liberated. Like just, I was like, wow, if one person can do that, then I, I want that job basically. So she, she, that supervisor um, was my inspiration to go and train to be a therapist. And that's been the sort of, as I say, that's been the bread and butter since. What is it that you're doing like on a day to day now then? Uh, so I do uh, a mixture of uh, therapy. Obviously, in the lockdown, it's all gone online. Um, and I work with, as I say, a range of... I don't work with younger children online, but I have um, quite a few teenage clients who struggle with different things, self-harm, uh, uh, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, panic attacks. Uh, drug addictions, that kind of stuff. Basically, basically, I'm not really specialising in anything. It's the whole range of stuff. Um, and then the rest of the time, as I said at the start, I um, run this uh, charity called A Part of Me. And uh, I'm really loving that at the moment because uh, we've gone recently in since this pandemic, we basically realised that we have this amazing app that we made to help young people uh, find a way through their grief when they lose someone close to them. And we sort of realized that actually there's something like over a million young people who are, have lost loved ones in this pandemic around the world. So we've sort of realized we really um, can help a lot of those people because they can't access any kind of uh, traditional services. They can't say goodbye to people properly. People are saying goodbye to parents and grandparents through iPad screens can't go to funerals, can't access the usual support. 
So we've been on like a really big mission the last three months to really um, uh, translate the game into, it's a game by the way, so it's like a therapeutic 3D world. Um, translating it into eight languages, um, try and get these right. So it's Portuguese, French, Spanish, German, Italian, Mandarin, Persian, and Hindi. Uh, is that eight? That's eight, isn't it? And um, uh, making some improvements as well uh, to the game. So in the last three months, it's been amazing. We've like, we're completely volunteer led at the moment. So we've got something like 50 volunteers who are all giving their time for free just to do a whole range of things, translating the game, making improvements to the game, uh, writing articles and blogs and doing social media and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's the thing that I'm feeling particularly excited about at the moment. That's incredible. So how does the how does the app work then, Louis? So it's based on a uh, island and the intro scene is your characters flying in and it's a stormy sky and you're on this airship and then you slowly land on this island and the island is a peaceful place it's it's a safe space and you get greeted by a guide who's this sort of wise being who lives on the island who um greets you and tells you that they've been through something similar to you and their job is to sort of hold your hand and guide you through this journey of grief and to help you come out the other side stronger, wiser, more compassionate. Uh, and then there's an island with creatures on the island. You can do meditations by the rock pool. You can listen to stories of other young people who have been through something similar to you. There's all these different little quests and mini games that you can play uh, within the game. And um, yeah, the feedback we've had since we launched it, um, when was it? It was Christmas 2018. F feedback has been really good. So um, uh, we've had a lot of people telling us how much the game's helped them. And young people have actually said, uh, we've had like reviews on the App Store for young people who said, actually, I haven't got grief, but I have got uh, um, anxiety or autism. And, and one girl said, I've got an eating disorder. I sit on the toilet at break times at school and I play this game for a few minutes and it really helps me to calm down. So when you get like just little reviews like that, you know, it just makes you feel warm and, and feel like you've, you know, it's just nice to feel like you've helped someone like that. And Stephen, same, same sort of question to you about what, what it is you're doing. We'll start with the... So obviously yours is similar to Louis. You've got kind of two facets to it. Do you want to start with with the filmmaking? How you got into that? Yeah, I mean, at sixteen, me, me and my best mates, we were, you know, we were good kids in quite a tough environment. And when we started trying to be little men, as I was saying earlier, we we our role models were just kind of the worst. And suddenly, a life of being a hooli and a life of crime, and that being the rite of passage. Because I, I mean. I can talk a lot about rites of passage. We, we've kind of lost any sense of that distinguishing moment in this culture of when a boy becomes a man. The only way that we really have that is through um, criminality, right? It's quite often that's the and like gang uh, indoctrination. But, but generally speaking, there's not a clear, clear passage from boyhood to manhood. And um, so for me at 16, just bringing it back to Louis' point about discovering Raven, I, at 16, I... 
I, I like I just had to escape the estate that I was growing up on because we were all just going down. It, everything was just going wrong, you know, like getting into crime and whatever. And uh, thank God I met some northerners, as in north of Birmingham, uh, who introduced me to the Hacienda in Manchester at 16 and to all of the thrills, pills and, and belly aches of um, clubland culture because it, it genuinely just changed my life. And, you know, what, what Louis was saying about how having those experiences at a formative age does actually make you think, well, hold on, what kind of human being do I want to be? What kind of adult do I want to be? Um, now, you know, it, it, I, I really took the scenic route to get to where I am now because, again, I can look back on on that kind of upbringing and I think I spent a long time just trying to kind of survive it, you know. But um, getting to where I am now, I mean, probably about 10, 11 years ago, I started working randomly. I trained a little bit as a dancer, which is, believe me, surprising. It's still surprising to me. But I ended up um, getting a, a dancing gig in a Zac Efron film, which then led to me getting an agent, which then led to me um, becoming a stand-in for actors on, like, big Hollywood feature films. So I was Sasha Brown Cohen for three months on a Mike Scorsese film called Hugo. Um and when you're a stand-in, you're basically, you, you are the actors. Um, you, you, it, when you're the double, then you're doing scenes when you can't see their face, when they basically can't be bothered to do themselves. And when, you, when you're the stand-in, you're doing all of their scenes with dialogue, with performance, um, but just in technical rehearsals, so like with the camera team, lighting team. And, and I'm doing, that, doing that job and watching, in the first instance, Martin Scorsese direct, Sash Brown Cohen every day and being just having to be there and just watch and pay attention kind of really got me into the mindset of, of directing. Uh, and I went from that and I worked, worked on Batman and Chris Nolan film uh, and then very, very different director. And where I'm going with this is, is at that point, um, I was, because of my background, I would never, ever, ever have thought that someone from the black country could make films, had a place in the world of films it could be creative i mean i really honestly mean that when i was a kid the idea of being creative was just something that would have been kind of beaten out of you by, by your mates you know and the older kids at school um but watching these directors work with amazing actors just gave me slowly gradually just a sense of what it is to to direct and to, and to to direct actors so um I do consider myself very much an actor's director, which means essentially working with people on an on a kind of emotional level, on an empathetic level, like on a on on a on a level of understanding where they're coming from, and the, the cross pollination of working with actors and working with kids and mentoring kids. I mean, it it really feels like the same thing, and that that's not to say that. I would work with actors as though they're children. It's more that I would work with children as though they are adults, you know? Um, so um, I really am, I don't know if I'm, I'm answering this in a very direct, well, I'm definitely not answering it in a direct way. But, um, but you know, just to bring in the mentoring side of things as well, um, I, um, I kind of had an experience, which I won't go into right now, but maybe a little bit later on, but I, I did have an experience where, I, I realized just how badly things can go for for kids from this from the kind of background that I grew up in. And and I also had that sense of I escaped, aren't I lucky? I've got a responsibility to to like give something back. 
And, um, you know, I, I started, I've been mentoring with a charity in, uh, in Hackney for the last five years called Ministry of Stories. And one of the things we do with that is, and this really ties into filmmaking and storytelling as well, it's, it's working with kids from, you know, Hackney's one of the poorest boroughs in London and therefore the country. Um, and it's working with kids to help them find their story, basically, find something that they're really passionate about, tuning into their own voice. We're talking about 13-year-olds here. And like over, over a 10-week process, we get them to, to contemplate and consider something they're really passionate about. And at, at the beginning, they're like, I don't care about anything and um but finding out that they really do care about stuff and at the end of the 10-week process we've we take them into the house of parliament where they stand up in the seat of power and they stand there and they hold forth and they deliver these speeches to you know to politicians and people who can who can make change and um man it's really really beautiful to see to watch these kids just 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 go from i don't care about anything to I really care about this stuff and I don't have the confidence to do this too. I'm standing up in the House of Parliament and I'm telling people what's important. And they're invariably talking about the lack of opportunity in their life and, and whatever kind of prejudice that they're facing. Um, and just final thing that I want to say on that, because um, I feel like I've been talking for about half an hour. Um, in mentoring kids, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, the thing that I see time and time and time again is the girls are absolutely on fire and they are flying. They are so engaged, so switched on, so ready to positively contribute to the world. And the boys, they're all, you know, picking their nose, playing PlayStation, dreaming of playing for Arsenal. And, and it's more than ever, I think that just proves that what we need are really positive male role models for this next generation of men, boys coming through who, who are going to be men. The incident that you did, the, the experience that you, you kind of touched on there, which... which... You mentioned in that when we were we were talking before, uh, mm. before we set this up, uh, was about a, a friend of yours from your childhood who who unfortunately um, died from suicide. Mm. Do you mind at this point talking us talking us through that experience? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so basically, like I said, when we were kids, there were there were five of us basically, and. Um, we were, we were good kids. We were imaginative kids. You know, when we were 13, 14, we'd wander the streets at night, like looking at the stars, wondering what it's all about. You know, like we were, we were good kids, you know, switched on and then, and then everything started to change. And seriously, by the time we were 15, 16, we were, you know, going to the local boozer and there was a whole, I mean, I, I look at these guys now and I still think of them as men older than me. And they're actually probably about 22. Um, but, you know, there's this gang of guys and they were cool, they were good looking, they were hard, girls loved them. Um, you know, they were like petty criminals, petty drug dealers. And we looked up to them massively. And, you know, we started getting led into, very, very rapidly led into doing things that scared the shit out of me, to be honest. And at 16, I didn't really have a steer on any idea of what I was supposed to be doing in my life. And there was no one really pointing me in that direction either. But I did know can't do this i just i don't want to you know break into shops and rob stuff and you know we'd be given instructions and we'd all stand there and we'd all no doubt be shitting it we'd all be terrified but no one was actually going to say that to each other because we we're all trying to like wear that mask of like well we're men now yeah 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 yeah. we can do this yeah yeah no worries yeah nice one we'll do that and um i i i, I basically at 16 i uh when school when school finished and i was living on a state a few miles away now um 
I didn't have to go back to where I was from. And so I was living on a different council estate. And so I just stopped going back and slowly, and as I mentioned, you know, discovered Manchester, which saved my life. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, Manchester. Um, you know, the whole thing about like drugs ruined my life. Well, sorry, when I was 16, 17, in that summer of love, some of those pills definitely saved my life. Um, drugs definitely didn't ruin my life then, but I'm not advocating the use of recreational drugs. Okay, kids? You like um, it? Like an inverse version of the verve, aren't you? At this point, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the drugs do work. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 yeah, they did. And just you know, like just being around people who were just all about the love rather than anything else. Um, but yeah, I basically escaped, and I I took myself away, and you know, I got educated, and I I, I ended up living in Japan for four years between like in my early twenties, uh, like teaching kids in Japan. And um, while I was living in Japan, I received uh, an, an email from someone I went to school with on Friends Reunited. Do you remember Friends Reunited pre-Facebook? Yeah. 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 So I got a message from somebody telling me that one of my best mates, um, had, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to leave his name out of it, um, had, had killed himself and um, she didn't really have many details. And honestly, it took me bloody years to process this information years and years and years when i found out i didn't i don't think i really reacted the last time i'd seen him was like when i was about 18 uh being in a nightclub and um him and my old mates uh just came up and were just like really cocky they're like do you want any gear or what like do any inmates want gear i'm like hold on we grew up together but they just don't want to know any of that it'd have become super super toxic so i didn't really have an emotional reaction but then i think probably about eight years ago i was driving past I was, I'd borrowed my mum's car, I was back in the black country at Christmas and I was driving past his house and and it just kind of hit me like a bolt from, a bolt from the blue. His mum and dad had had to bury him and just that moment of like, oh my God, he's, well, uh, I'm just going to call him Alan, right? Just for the purpose of, um, and I just thought, oh my God, Alan's mum and dad who were like the loveliest people have had to bury their youngest son and I've got to find out what happened. And it took me about three years to build up the courage to go and um, knock on their door. I mean, bearing in mind that their house was my safe haven um, when I was when I was growing up. Like it, uh, Alan's mom used to feed me. His dad would quite often drive me home because um, you know there was a period where you know, I was sleeping on a camp bed in my mom's boyfriend's kitchen. You know, and so they really, really looked after me. And so this idea that they'd had to bury their bury their youngest son just like really broke my heart. But it took me a long time to really process that. And um, it was five years ago when I finally um, must, mustered up the courage, having literally spent a few Christmases sitting in my mum's car outside their house, just like wrapping my fingers on the dashboard. Like, I've got, to, I've got to do something. I've got to knock on the door. I've got to find out what happened. I've got to give them a hug. I've got to tell them that I love them. I was just heartbroken that two of the best people in the world had had to bury their son. And, um, and when I did finally muster up the courage, you know, I sat with them for two hours and it was just... It was really, really, really beautiful. But I also saw, because Alan's older brother had also been deeply, deeply, deeply traumatised what had happened by what had happened. And, um, and when I found out what had happened, this is what had happened, um, not, not long after I'd kind of turned my back on that way of life, um, Alan and uh, some of the older guys who were hanging out with had uh, decided, well, the, basically under this older guy's direction, had uh, agreed to... Uh, mugger pools coupon collector and um this older guy like cracked this guy apparently with a baseball bat like really 
really did him in. Um, and they got away with a fiver. And Alan was 17 at the time. And he got done. And he went into he, he went to prison at 17. I don't think that's possible, but he did. And he had a total mental breakdown while he was inside. His older brother had a mental breakdown on the outside. Um, and kind of long story short, when he got out a few years later, he was in and out of institutions and various um, drug abuse, etc. And he ended up throwing himself in front of the tra- in front of a train um, at uh, at my local train station. You know, like where I went to nursery school when we were when we were little kids. You know, and and do you know what? I, I should actually just add this one little caveat that I'm using the word suicide. Um, his mom never believed it was because without uh, without a note, then there's never a there's never a, a kind of confirmation that it's suicide. There's always it's always left um, the decision is left out unless it's confirmed by a note. And his mother never did believe, and his father has said, you know, kind of the jury's out on that. But um, I mean, everybody else, it's it's pretty pretty clear that he he jumped in front of a train, um, and. Um, you know, for me, finding that out and ultimately sorting my own shit out to get to a point now where I can uh, I can afford to just create some time to to help kids to to lead them astray. Uh, sorry, not to lead them astray, to stop them from being led astray. Um, it all really is kind of done in honour of what of what uh, what his family went through, what he went through, and let let's just to, just to wrap it up. I mean, this is just a kid on an estate who was under the influence of some older kids, or blokes, I'll say, not kids, uh, who thought that this was the way to be and quickly realised that it wasn't the way to be, but it was all far, 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 far too late. And we see it time and time and time again where young men just screw up their lives um, and they haven't they haven't really had the guidance to, to steer them away from that, which is why I'm just passionate about men mentoring boys you know being positive role models long answer sorry no not at all Stephen thanks for thank you for sharing that with us um Louis that kind of brings me on to to the next question which we sort of touched on earlier thinking that you've been doing you were saying about why there are more children nowadays that are having problems with their mental health than ever before what is your what are your kind of feelings around that well, um, funnily enough, I've actually been trying to get my thoughts down into the form of a book proposal, which has been causing me a lot of grief the last few weeks. <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, it's fairly obvious to say, I think, that um, on one level, you know, uh, it's obviously there are certain social conditions about the way that we are living mainly in the sort of what what you know it's a bit lazy to call it this but in the western world the way we're living isn't conducive to uh good mental health and it's because we have disconnected ourselves from nature that's a big thing and i've um spent quite a bit of time with um leaders from indigenous cultures basically indigenous just means a culture that's kind of retained its uh unique essence and hasn't decided to 
try and grow and scale into some big civilization. At least that's my definition of it. Probably someone's got a much better one than that. But uh, there's something interesting about indigenous cultures because for some reason, whereas like a lot of cultures try and take over neighboring cultures and take over the world, something about indigenous cultures, they just find a way to live more in harmony with nature. So I've found over the last few years, there's a lot of amazing wisdom to be gained um, from that perspective. Um, and a lot of it is just about living in harmony with nature, the whole way of living, the whole philosophy, how they eat, how they pray, how they do a lot of things in harmony with nature. And there's a statistic about um, uh, young people in the UK uh, spend less time outdoors than inmates. Did you see that one? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, by me. Yeah, that was from 2019. Uh, and a lot of that is um, to do with technology and just basically technology, what the te technology companies want to do and have been wanting to do for a while. And yeah, this is painting a little bit of a negative picture of them, but they've wanted to get as close to us as possible and get into our homes. So there was this term floating about a few years ago when I was writing about it, digital ubiquity, which basically is a posh way of saying we want to have, we want to get you wherever you are, you know, we want to get you looking at our stuff wherever you are. So in a way, you know, if I don't know how old you are, mate, but um, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I often think back to those times and think, well, when I came home from school and I could have had a shit day at school, uh, often did, and I was often tired and... I'd get home, I'd eat a few peanut butter sarnies and I'd lie down on the um, on the sofa and I'd just go to sleep because I was so tired. And in a way that helped me to process the day. Mm. And I think nowadays the kids that I know and have worked with over the last few years, they can't switch off. It's impossible to switch off. There's no space to switch off from the stresses of the day. So if you think, if you're going to school today, there's dr so many dramas that happen at school on an average day, so many relationship dramas, there's bullying, there's who's, you know, who's better than you, who looks better than you, who's cleverer than you, who's funnier than you. All of that drama that you have to process in your, um, you know, young brain and body. And then you get home and that whole drama is still being pumped into your nervous system all the way through the evening and often a lot of kids that i um work with and speak to um are sleeping with their phones next to the bed one girl that i used to work with at um, kids company had her this was this was a few years ago so she had her blackberry under a pillow and she said when i asked her about that she said um well i can't not check it in the night because what if somebody's talking about me this is a big obviously it's a big big um uh problem and then there's other things uh, i mean i feel like generally in in the western world we, we um just we're just following a bit blindly uh this sort of path where we just want everything to be faster stronger better and it's just like we we think that we can just keep getting better and better without losing something mm. um and so there's this kind of we like swimming in this sort of um, 
idea that there should always be something better around the corner. You know, your phone always, there's always a better phone. There's always an upgrade around the corner. And then we apply that same idea to ourselves. And I think that affects kids particularly because kids are sensitive. Um, and they're, you know, they're growing up immersed in that culture. So they never really just feel like they're just okay in themselves, or at least it's harder to feel like you're just okay in yourself. So um, that's a big part of it as well. And then there's the sort of really alongside that is the sort of culture of um, um, individualism, which basically means just um, each man for himself and not looking out for each other. And um, there's been a, there's a great book called Generation Me by this psychologist in, she's Dutch, I think she lives in America. She certainly wrote, wrote it about American kids. And it's this whole um, study about how young people are growing up um, more individualistic and more narcissistic, which basically means they're just more obsessed with themselves and their own self-image than ever before. And, you know, that makes sense in a way because, um, I mean, I definitely don't want to blame. There's lots of good things about social media, for sure. But it can, you know, without the right sort of structure and thought, it can lead to a kind of, like, obsession with your own image. Uh, big well, time. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting, that, Louis, because I, <laughs> I, read the, um, I read the article that you, that you, that you did, which was about the, the links between social media and, and self-harm and mm. the I watched the video as well online today in terms of in terms of that then is the is is that kind of backed up by kind of because because I, I would tend to agree with you on that point I've always been um I mean I did I did 18 months off social media well from, done. Uh, at one point and it was it was incredibly liberating. I bet you felt a lot better, didn't you? Yeah, oh, enormously. And to be entirely honest with you, I pretty much only use um, Twitter now for to do this podcast, basically, just because it's quite and uh, quite difficult to get this sort of thing out to people without using it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I did find when I first started using, our, you know, we set up our Twitter for the podcast and the first mm. few months and stuff, I had to literally almost tell myself to stop worrying about how many people liked posts and retweeted mm. stuff yeah. and, you yeah. know, all that sort of stuff. And and it's hard balancing that, like, because the, the one angle of it is you want it to do well and you want to reach people and you want as many people to engage with it as possible. But equally at the same time, and, I, and do you know what the, the most interesting thing? We spoke, we interviewed a guy called um, called Luke Moore, who's, who is on a podcast called The Football Ramble. And mm. um, they're the, the, the biggest... I think it's the biggest independent sports podcast in the country. And they basically, they were, that was their podcast was basically what got me into podcasts about six or seven years ago. And mm. I basically messaged him and said, how do we measure what's good and not good from the downloads that we're getting? Because it's, you know, you can see where well, we've had this many people listen to the episodes and you can do a bit of Googling and stuff, but it's almost like a little bit like how long's a piece of string. And he mm. basically just replied saying, don't worry about, he said, don't concentrate on the numbers. Don't worry about who's listening. Don't worry about any of that. Just concentrate on getting your content good and getting mm. what your output and what you're actually doing good. He said, because if it's good, people will listen to it and engage with it because that's just the way that it goes. 
and I th- and that was such a helpful thing for me. And like since I literally I had to like delete the the app that gave you the analytics off off my phone because it was just it was making me feel unwell. Just every yeah. every yep. time I hit my phone up, I had to open it because it's too easy. Yeah, to access it so. It, it it's so liberating. To, and I I left a WhatsApp group the other day as well that I was was that I felt was getting too much. And, and the same thing again, just feels like an enormous weight. Like you say, Louis, like that you 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 can't get away from things. We we compared it to like when you play for a football team and you've got that dressing room atmosphere, which is all well and good for an hour or two on a Saturday morning, but you wouldn't want it twenty four hours a day, which is basically <laughs> what a WhatsApp group relates to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never stops. And yeah, one's in about fifteen of them as well, mm. and it's just crazy. I just find it like it's just relentless. So that 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 article that Louis that I was referencing before then it was kind of so. What is the, are there specifically sort of like proven links then between so the, you know the advent of social media and and sort of the increase in in ill mental health for for young people. The, what I tend to say um, on this question is in the day of Google, you can find evidence to support whatever your argument is. Yeah. Um, so, yes, there is evidence to support the fact that social media and too much of it is damaging for your mental health. But you can equally find stuff that questions that. So what I tend to suggest to people it's just the most simple thing is that just really pay attention to what you feel like. What do you feel like um, when you're just scrolling through your social media feed? What do you feel like when you're, you know, looking over the statistics of your latest uh, post or your Twitter feed or your, or your podcast? And if it's making you feel queasy or unwell or uh, stressed or it, it makes you find it, you know you find it difficult to sleep after that then that's just enough uh, evidence to tell you that it's not good for you mm. you know yeah so that's kind of what I um, that's what I tend to come back to the most the most solid evidence that anyone needs is just how does anything make you feel and you know I often, um, just to say one, one more thing on that, um, uh, it, I like to compare, <clears throat> I, I like the word nourishing because it's quite a helpful word that can, you can think about something as being nourishing. Like if you have a uh, really good Sunday roast, let's say, often that can feel like a nourishing meal, like you feel really satisfied after it and uh you know you don't feel hungry straight after it uh and so you can compare that to other activities that you do what are the activities that help you to feel nourished and what are the ones that leave you feeling hungry or starving or unsatisfied and uh, that's definitely true of how we consume our sort of digital content like i find for example with some podcasts they can really leave you feeling like nourished, like you really got something so good out of it and you felt like you were part of a conversation. There's something yeah. about podcasts that's great, but scrolling through social media and a lot of other stuff you can do online just leaves you feeling uh, unsatisfied. And one of my um, colleagues who's written books about social media and psychology 
um, I, I was having a lunch with him once, and, I, and um, we were talking about how the the sort of um, the 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 um, the leaders of Silicon Valley, the Mark Zuckerbergs and people like that, who have set up and run these big tech companies that are dominating our lives. It's well known that they don't let their kids use smartphones, and that a lot of them. It's well known. No, it is an absolute fact, and a lot of them have dumb phones and uh it's it's obvious that they know that it's not good for them and i said don't you think that's crazy and then he said and i always remember i thought this is such a great comparison he said do you think the ceo of mcdonald's eats a big mac meal every day yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. of course wow. he doesn't wow you know what <sighs> so Stephen, then from from the, the the stuff that you're doing in terms of when you're mentoring young people and particularly young people from maybe backgrounds that are probably, as you say, more disadvantaged. Yeah. Do you find that those type of children from that background are, are more at risk of falling into those traps that Louis was talking about because they've not got the, as you say, the influences to, to guide them to other things or the social stimulus to provide alternative activities? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's... Um it's pretty pretty simple that if you've got a child who doesn't have like a really solid parental unit who's really giving them some guidance and which is a lot of kids a lot of kids and if you're if you're one of those kids then you could just fall foul of of god knows what i mean it takes an incredible amount of strength and inner resource to um you know, to, to find your way as, as a little kid in that, and by little kid, you know, I'm, I'm including teenagers as well, with all of with all of the pressures in your community and then everything that Louis just described as well. I mean, you know, the, the virtual community is literally endless. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, the, 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 the power of stories, and that includes the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, um, you're aware of the, the hero's journey. Have you heard of the hero's journey? It's like the archetype for all storytelling. It goes back to like kind of ancient Greek and Roman storytelling. But the idea of the hero's journey is that the hero, the character in the story, um, ha by very definition of being heroic, has to start from like the lowliest position. And for them to then ultimately go on this huge trajectory, they need to start from somewhere really, really lowly. And so when I'm working with kids who are from, you know, just like I said, disadvantaged backgrounds, it's when you're from that background, it's very easy to basically just feel shit about yourself. And again, most, I'm, I'm massively generalizing now, but it's very, well, I'll just stick with that. It's very easy. I'm not going to say most, most kids from that background, but it's very easy from that kind of background to walk around feeling shit about yourself. And that can carry on into your adult years and can manifest in all kinds of ways and if you can just get to kids from the earliest age and just really really help them understand mate that that weight that you're carrying that is actually your strength that is your and, and to actually encourage kids to see that all these things that you feel that you lack are actually the things that are making you heroic in your own way um it's just really powerful man and and you know and my pitch for for more men to be mentors the thing that i learned through through mentoring is it made me I, it probably just actually made me an adult 
it, it definitely made me a better man. And and I think the logic of that is when, you know, as adults, who's got their shit together? Really? Like who's got 100% of their shit together? I haven't. But when I'm working with kids who are looking up to you and they're like, right, well, you're the adult, so you've clearly got to have some answers. It just It just makes you bring your A game and it makes you put your emphasis on someone outside of yourself and when you're paying attention to somebody else and thinking about what they need it it essentially makes you makes you a better person um so yeah i just encourage every bloke out there to just find some way to find some time to give something back to the kids i mean you know pupil referral units you're aware of uh, prus so yeah. when kids when kids just get expelled enough they just get sent off to pupil referral units and I mean, you know, generally as a society, as a culture, we, we tend to just let those kids just go and just be like, do you know what? Actually, you're probably beyond fixing now. Well, I would urge us all to try and find a way to to counter that thinking and to think about how we can we can help those kids. Because in helping other kids, in helping other people, it helps us. It helps us as well. It makes us better people. One thing that I'd, 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 I'd quite like to get both of your opinions on would be in one of the things that we keep talking about on, on this podcast, and it's, it's, I almost feel like whilst the evidence would suggest that it's true and my own experience would suggest that it's true, it almost, I, I sometimes have to keep going back to asking whether it is true in that all these things about talking about mental health and anxiety, depression, suicide, self-harm, all those things. And we keep coming back to the thing of men are crap at this, young boys are crap at talking about it, we don't engage with it. From your both of your experiences, is that actually true? Do, do, do you find that that is boys are worse than that than girls? I, I think just one thing that I always think about the way that boys can communicate with each other versus girls is um, uh, my experience when I've got a problem most of my male mates who I try to if I try to speak to them about it they're gonna as soon as I go with my vulnerability and I say right this is the thing that I feel shit about and I feel really like Ugh, and invariably they'll try and fix it they'll take that and, and by trying to fix it they've already elevated their position above mine so mm. then, then you're getting that sense of, okay, mate, well, this is what you're doing wrong, and this is, this is what you should do. And, and suddenly you're in this position of like, oh, right, yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks for like, giving me all of this advice, which just makes you feel shitter about yourself. And when you think about the kind of the stereotypical feminine reaction to somebody having a hard time, it's just like listening and cuddles and like love and all of that stuff. You know, I mean, I've just split it all my messes, right? And... Um, not my not my wife, I should say, but I've just put on my girlfriend, and I'm very aware that her when we were together, her her support network around her it's incredible. Like she speaks to her friends all the time, and I speak to my best mates sometimes a couple of times a month, you know, like people I've known since childhood. So I I I, I do think that guys are just we're, we're just a little bit more isolated, and then when we do speak with each other it's quite difficult. It's quite an elevated bloke who's going to be like, do you know what? I'm not going to judge you on this and I'm not going to try and fix your problem. I'm going to listen to you and tell you that it's okay to have this problem. It's okay to feel the way that you do. 
because as blokes we quite often not encouraged or told that it's okay to feel the way that we feel you know do you think then that because like a, a natural reaction for for a bloke might be to try and solve the problem that mm. almost when someone's telling you about their problem that you think that your role is to fix the problem so you just go into solver mode it's very though. yeah it's very blokey isn't it it's a very blokey relate blokey reaction and i've made that mistake with like um you know like girlfriends in the past where i just want you to listen i don't want you to fix it i just want you to listen but yeah for me it's something that i've definitely learned but what do you think lou um I think I definitely agree with what you say, Steve, that um, uh, sadly, as much as I initially, when you asked that question, Daniel, I wanted to, part of me wanted to say, no, blokes are actually okay. We can, we can chat about this and we are good at doing, you know, we can be good at doing this, but I, I sadly do think that there is just something that does, something is making us generally really crap at this and I'm sort of a little bit hesitant in a way because um well I wasn't sure whether I really wanted to talk about it or not but um it's kind of like a very personal issue for me because uh I think it was two two and a bit years ago my best friend committed suicide and you know I'm I'm a therapist so I sort of had chatted to him, you know, um, many times over the sort of year and a half that he was not very well. And, um, you know, I, I sort of, I obviously have questioned whether I was helpful or not, whether I was trying to fix it or not. And, I definitely think just being brutally honest that there is something about two bloke friends chatting to each other. There's just some kind of barrier. I mean, I'm not, you know, this isn't me trying to get sympathy. Please don't think that. And I am, um, you know, uh, I've dealt with that in my own way, but I definitely think thinking about there's just some weird barrier that we, find it difficult to go there and it is it's just definitely a problem and i do think um i want to try and say something positive because it's all sounding a bit bleak and it's definitely not that bleak because things are getting better um you know i mean therapy isn't for everyone but a lot of blokes come to see me for therapy and uh, uh you know we're good at opening up in that space but that's quite a unique space do you know what i think it is i think we what we need to do is we need to find uh different spaces in a way and, and ways of talking about it because where blokes traditionally hang out some of those places are just not appropriate for talking about this stuff no. like going to a football match just doesn't feel appropriate to start saying that you've been, you know, struggling with anxiety and depression, mm. you know, going to the pub, is that the best place to talk about this stuff? Maybe, but it doesn't feel like it. Cause you know, you're probably also like, uh, eyeing up the birds and, or whatever you're doing, you know, it just doesn't feel that appropriate. So just on like, that movie, do you think maybe on. be one of those things where, because I, 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 I tend to agree with you that, 
you almost feel like, you know, I, I, I've been in that situation where, you, you know, when you feel like, oh, I really want to ask him about that or I really want to make sure that I ask him about that. But then mm. you're, you're on a night out and you're, you're like, oh, we're watching the match and then after we're watching the match, we were in that bar and then after we're in that bar, we were in that nightclub and then, it, and then it, you never get to. But yeah. you think maybe it almost needs to be like a conscious decision that we just go, it doesn't fucking matter where we are. It don't, don't matter if we're at the football, if we're in the pub, if we're in the supporters club, but at the, whatever it is, everywhere becomes appropriate. If you know what I mean. Mm. Definitely. Well, there's um, I totally agree with that. And there's uh, there are some great initiatives. Uh, there's one called the I think they're called the Barber Lion Collective. Have you heard of them? No, no. Um, I think I'm getting this right. Um, but from what I remember, this is a group of people who basically cut men's hair whilst talking about mental health yes that's it the lions barber collective an international collection of barbers uh and the whole thing is like whilst you're getting your hair done uh you're talking about that stuff and that kind of stuff those kind of projects are amazing i love that and i think we Mm. need more of that kind of stuff that's kind of just offering blokes a space in the places where they might normally go and hang out the moment you get into this cycle of expressing a weakness, if someone is there to confirm it for you, in in whatever way, whether it's you comparing yourself with other blokes or a, a mate trying to help but actually kind of talking down to you, you just get locked into this cycle of it getting more and more negative. Just really to celebrate what's good about men, um, one thing I love about men, and to be honest, I think one of the problems is that Maybe we, we, we all go into our little caves and for me personally, I don't feel like I just don't, I, I don't see enough of my male friends. And when I do, I generally feel good and I feel nourished after hanging out with my male friends. I just don't see them enough. Um, and I think one of the good things about, uh, this is such a big generalization, by the way, but I really like and appreciate the fact that with my mates, we can rip each other. And it's not in a harsh way and it's not in a bullying way, but I think there's actually something really good about that, that um, I think in a way should be celebrated because, you know, in a sense, there are some parts of the culture are so sensitive about taking the mick out of anyone, you know, and I just think that's actually something, you know, obviously the subjects we're talking about are really, uh, you know, serious subjects, but also I really appreciate my, male friends for taking the mick out of me and me taking the mick out of them and just sort of keeping each other in check. Louis, you know? I'm always here to take the piss out of you. <laughs> <laughs> me too, brother. Me too. <laughs> but but I, do, you know what, do you know what I mean, though? Like, I really do yeah, I, I agree. my male yeah. friends in a way that I, I rarely find that with female friends. But just the counterpoint to that, Lou, is the other thing that I'm aware of, that so much of what can be passed off as banter can actually... Mm feel a lot like bullying for the person mm. and because yeah. we say what's wrong with you oh man we're just mucking about it's just mm. i've definitely like as a child and an adult felt like shit man this we're all just uh, we're just having a joke and maybe i'm being a bit sensitive but i'm really feeling shit about myself right now mm. and you know and, and so there is that other kind of side to it as well mm. i think it's um it's twofold isn't it really i mean so um Ryan, who's one of the other lads who does this this podcast with me normally, one thing since we've been, I've been mates with him for about 10 years now, 
and we've we were friends from playing in a football team together so came from that environment and we have been going to match together for the last five or six years so we sit on the same row with at the match and what have you so we're very much in a, in a, a kind of take the piss out of each other environment but one thing i've massively learned from ryan and i think it's something that i've only picked up on recently has been he's very very good at complimenting people if they do mm. something good he's constantly telling people yeah. and he's never he's he's very rarely negative but he's he will take the piss out of you all day but he's really mm. nice about so like like when we're doing this podcast i i do most of like the visuals and stuff for it so if i send something into our group and say is everyone happy with this mm. he's always very even if he wants me to change something he's always good to be like i really like how that's been laid out top effort but he's, it's just something i've picked up from him and i think that's something that i think that generally fellas could probably be better at is oh, being yeah. complimentary amen. to your friends amen and like, amen because i think i think i like one another thing as well as which which is another thing i've learned from 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 ryan i'm not gonna let him listen to this he'll get a massive head but, <laughs> He is is telling your mates that you love them as well. Like I think, yeah. I think that's a really positive, healthy thing to do. And we tend yeah. to do it, and I know I tend to do it when I'm pissed. We just yeah. do it all the time. Just text, just mm. text them and tell them that you love them. Like mm. it's sound. Like don't worry about it. And yeah. I think it's it's I think getting into that habit and routine of so like where, since we've been doing this podcast, one thing the biggest thing I think I've learned is to be more complimentary to people when they do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, or they're proud of to like mention it because yeah. doesn't make you feel good. And I think that's such an because it almost then it massively counterbalances when five minutes later he's taking the piss out of me because it mm. doesn't exactly. I, I don't, I don't feel it as much because I feel like well, he was sound. He, 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 he I know he, he's only messing because he, yeah, you no, know, he said something nice before, and I, yeah. and I don't think, I don't think it's like it's done in it with any malice and almost like buy himself some excuse. But I do think that's a really good thing that he does that I think a lot of men don't do is being complimentary to your mates. Yeah, so I think that's, that's massively a, a positive thing that we could learn. It's an amazing point. It's an amazing point to make. And it's something I think about a lot as well. Like when I'm mentoring kids, I mean, it's easy to remember, right? ABC, always be complimenting. Um, and not in like a really kind of ass kissy way, but just like see the good, like find the good in in people and just like give them that compliment. It's beautiful to people and it just makes people happy all the time. But for some blokes, there is just that sense that, oh, well, I can't compliment you because that would suggest that you've done something really good and I'm the only person who can do really good things around here. Do you know what I mean? That kind of like arrogant... Like, like insecurity, be, isn't it? Yeah, it would, it would well, be a what weakness, I was thinking it, it is, would be a like weakness on my part to, to, to compliment yeah. you. Go on, Lee. It's like the, um, what I was thinking was, um, you know, the sort of idea of the alpha male mm. and the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like we have that sort of built in a bit more as, as men, whereas women tend to sort of like, you know, they get their security by sticking together and like nurturing each other and mm -hmm. picking fleas out of each other's backs. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure your missus is going to want to hear you talking about her fleas. <laughs> but I feel like, yeah, men have this kind of, there's a little bit of an inbuilt insecurity that if you are too complimentary to someone, then you'll lose your power and your authority. But I love what you were saying there, Daniel. It's like almost, I feel like you could summarize what the type of bloke that we need more in the 21st century is someone who can say I love you to his mates 
and take the piss out of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Love yeah. that. So I was I was quite a good footballer when I was a kid, and I I I was I was quite regretful that I never did anything with it. But for years and years and years, I just could never admit that anybody else was better at football than me. I just couldn't mm. do it mm. because I was just like I'd be like, yeah, the good, he's he's not that good, and it'd be like mm. I, honestly, I could have played against Messi, and I'd been I'd be claiming he wasn't that good just because mm-hmm. I couldn't admit that he was better than me, and like I found like. I, I I hated that aspect of my own personality because I was just like you know when you just when you when you recognise something yourself and you think, I hate that I don't want to be that person because mm. I find it really like unattractive in a person so mm. I just you have to make like a conscious effort I think that's like one of the big things isn't it? it's like engaging with those things mm. that are making you miserable and being like a not being a passive participant in it being active in that conversation yeah, in, yeah. In, engaging with them and then in whatever capacity you do, then kind of passing that on as well, you know? So, so you kind of learn, you learn your own experience. And then like, even you just saying that tonight and talking about Ryan has reminded me of something that I think I, I live as a principal, but I'm just hearing you talk about that has made me realize I still don't do that enough. And something I wanted to, to, to ask you, Louis was, was another topic that's come up a few times was about the difficulty in people being able to access mental health services and it was actually something that, that came up in a conversation on on social media i had with somebody today actually and so my my monday to friday my my nine to five job i work in uh, in general practice so I, i'm quite used to being around healthcare and and that side of things from mm. from kind of your experiences i i often worry if a lot all this kind of momentum that people are building up and this work that people are doing to try and encourage people to be better at engaging with their mental health might almost create like a bit of a bottleneck for people who can't access the services at the other end. So in terms of from your perspective, from the work that you do, is that something that you've experienced in terms of people having issues being able to actually access those services? Uh, There's definitely, um, uh, yeah, not enough services for kids. That's, for sure but at the same time i think that we should not underestimate uh the impact that we can have just with each other because you know um it wasn't that long ago when there wasn't such a thing as mental health services and people got support through their community and communities supported each other um uh you know i'm not i'm really glad that we have mental health services now and i think um i hope that you know we can prioritize funding for more mental health services um but i really honestly feel that more people should feel empowered to look after each other especially blokes i feel that we can do more we don't you don't need to have a complicated training um some of the basics of mental health are really actually really simple um there are certain ways that you can relate to your feelings and your thoughts that will help you to find more peace and i honestly think that more people can learn them i think it's the dalai lama uh that said some something i'm completely misquoting this but he said (laughs) you know if if half the um half the children in the world meditated, then the world would be just an ultimately peaceful place. 
I'm a big believer in um, meditation as one way to find um, just a bit more peace in, in the chaos of the world. It's not the only way, but it's one way. And, you know, people can access that. Um, and I, I really believe in the ripple effect. So we've been talking about having just chats with with your mates and stuff. And I really believe that if you, you know, like both of you, Stephen and Daniel, who want to do this sort of work and want to help uh, particularly blokes with their mental health, I really believe that you shouldn't underestimate the value of just simple everyday conversations. As Steve says, not trying to fix things all the time, but actually just listening. Mm. As a bloke, if you just listen to one of your mates and you sort of check in with them and, and you're open to listen to them if they're struggling with stuff, that can be transformative in itself. I, I really believe that. So that's kind of my long-winded, slightly long-winded answer to that. Mm. Do you think a lot of a lot of blokes almost feel like, and I, I'll probably just extend this to, to everybody, that a lot of a lot of people don't ask the question and listen because they're a bit almost They don't like know the thing. right thing. Yeah, they don't know what the right thing to say is. But yeah, honestly, they're a bit scared great... of what, what position to yeah. make. There's this great, um, there's this documentary, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, but basically in the 70s, I'm not doing very well, my memory's getting late. Um, in the 70s or 80s in America, they created this computer. It was like one of the early forms of a very basic artificial intelligence. This computer was called um, Eliza or Lisa, E-L-I-S-A. And they were basically training it to be a kind of uh, therapist. And all they train the computer to do in text form, on if you imagine like a really old school computer screen with that green text and the cursor, it just repeated back what the person um, typed in. And they have this video footage of this one woman using it and she's typing in, oh, I'm feeling really stressed. This is going on, that's going on. The computer pretty much just types back what she's saying. And she comes away from it and she goes, Oh, I feel amazing. That was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. well, I mean, the point of that is just don't, if you let go of your ego and just listen to someone and just literally even just like letting them know that you've heard them and listen to them and reflect back what they're saying, it's really helpful. Mm. Mm. It's like that old adage, isn't it, that um, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So thank you for listening. Before I hand you over to Stephen and Louis, quick fire, just want to say that if you want to get in touch with us at Man Marking, you can email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag, where's the talking lads? If you've enjoyed this episode today or any other episode that we've brought you, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and you can drop us a five-star review and a rating on there. It would be incredibly helpful for us to be able to grow the podcast and reach new listeners. We'll be back on Friday with an interview with former Aston Villa and Manchester United youth player Jason Lampkin. So we'll see you then. On the Wirral, we have uh, a chain of bakeries called Hearst's, and there's about seven or eight of them. And they haven't got them anywhere else apart from on the Wirral. And it's 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 sort of our um, pride and joy on the on the Leisure Peninsula. And one of the greatest joys of Hearst is getting the Hearst's meal deal, which 
used to be two ninety five, although they did up it to three pound fifty, and um, which I was exclusively blaming on David Cameron, but I don't think <laughs> he actually had anything to do with it. But there you go. So for the meal deal, you get a, a nudger or a or a or a bomb. So nudger or, or a bomb sandwich. You get a cold drink, and then at the topping off of it is that you get a cake, and you get three selections of cake. And what I want from you lads is what cake you'd go for. So we get either a flapjack, a shortbread, or an iced bun. Well, flapjack, definitely. I mean, ice bun every day of the week. And another crucial question here would be, are you dipping them in your coffee or your tea? Or are you a no-dipper type of person? No, not dipping. I've never dipped an ice bun in my tea in my life. But now is definitely the time to start. Yeah, I think so. Tell your mate that you love him and then dip your ice bun in his cup of tea. That's what I, I hope that's not a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, mate. Can I dip my ice bun in your tea? <laughs> if you wink and lick your lips at the same time, it works even better, I bet. Um, oh, we'll God. Move, we'll move swiftly on. Um, <laughs> um, so what's your, um, what's your best football memory? Oh, well, it obviously has to be uh, Sergio Aguero's goal against uh, QPR in the nine-second minute. Do you remember where you were when that went in, Louis? Uh, Yes, I do. I was actually uh, in a pub in London with my two uh, Mancunian friends, Alan Chip, and we um, we, uh, we basically um, were obviously despairing by that point and quite a few sheets to the wind and uh, <laughs> obviously went absolutely mental after that and have watched that so many times more than any other piece of football content ever since it is an amazing uh it was an amazing it is an amazing moment well mine's a little bit more niche and i'm just plucking this one out of the air because it's the first one i thought of i'll probably think of five more later on but um I mentioned earlier that I, I lived in Japan for four years. And while I was living in Japan, that was 98 to 2002, um, you know, I really served my time as a baggie. That's getting up in the middle of the night, because obviously eight hours ahead, uh, getting up in the middle of the night to listen to West Brom lose 1-0 away at Millwall on internet <laughs> radio. I mean, I really, really earned my, my, my baggy stripes. But in that season, 2001-2002, which was the season we got promoted to the Premier League, we were behind Wolves um, with about, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like eight games to go. They're 13 points ahead. It was it was just not doable at all, except it obviously was doable because we ultimately uh, trumped them. They just went on a massive losing spree. And I just remember being in my flat in Japan, listening to West Brom away at Bradford. And it was the 92nd minute and it was nil-nil. And if we won... Then we went into pole position and we used to have this Slovak um, like left back called Igor Balis. And I even just loved loved his name, you know, just a <laughs> footballer called Igor. Because in my mind, Igor has only got the, you know, uh, the, the what is Igor? It's a Frankenstein, isn't it? Like Igor. Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. So I just remember listening on internet radio at some ungodly hour. Actually, wasn't that late to Igor Balis slotting in a 90 second minute penalty to make to allow us to leapfrog wolves and ultimately beat them in promotion to the premier league it was really really a beautiful moment love eagle ballis 
<laughs> so not quite not quite an Aguero moment, but you know, it was for me. Into the first minute of added time. Reaches Taylor. Taylor, oh he's upended, it's a penalty! Unbelievable! Myers challenge, Taylor goes down, and the team who just missed penalties for fun now have one of the most vital in their history. Well, you couldn't write it, could you? Igor Barlis versus Alan Coop. And he's tucked it in! Oh, look at the scenes! A win on the final day, and promotion to the Premiership is theirs! Unbridled joy! Has a penalty ever meant so much to West Bromwich Albion? Kids crying. It's finished at Sunderland. Manchester United have done all they can. That Rooney goal was enough for the three points. Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli, Aguero! I swear you'll never see anything like this ever again. So watch it. Drink it in. Manchester City to snatch the title away from Manchester United.